Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. This month is February, and in the United States, since I'm actually not sure how long it's been, but it has been established that February is celebrated as Black History Month, where in the schools and uh, out and about and in our daily events and lives, we celebrate uh, the contributions of African Americans in the United States and catch up a little bit on the pitiful job that we've done so far in doing that, in remembering and acknowledging uh, the contributions of black Americans and uh, what they have done for us. So we here on uh, Two Guys in a Chainsaw, I, I don't know, I just, I came out to Craig one time and I said, you know, <laughs> of course, we just did a Valentine's Day thing. We love to do these holiday things. But there is a whole genre of film that we've touched on and dipped into just a little bit that is geared especially towards uh, African-Americans in the horror industry, uh, obviously. There is a period of time in the 70s, late 70s, called Blaxploitation Cinema, which uh, a couple hundred movies, uh, actually I think more than 400 films, were released where it was suddenly realized African-Americans, there might be a market for movies believe it or not, starring them, with them in it, with stories that uh, speak to them or that they care about, you know, after being relegated to really, really poor roles in Hollywood, like uh, mammy-type maid roles, like in Gone with the Wind, or sidekick roles, or there are just a lot of these tropes that we have. And uh, horror cinema has been no better at that. However, uh, in the late 70s, there were some opportunities there I mean, quite honestly, to make money. And that is the sort of mixed bag that we dive into when we talk about blaxploitation cinema. It's black and exploitation (laughs) meshed together, right? It's sort of a double-edged sword here. In preparation for this art uh, for this episode, because another reason why Craig and I don't try to dive too deep into this stuff is that we're two of the whitest guys you probably know. Like the whitest white guy. (laughs) (laughs) We are we are wonder bread. Okay. (laughs) This is what we are. So, you know, it makes us a little nervous that we might say something that that just displays our ignorance. We're certain that we have a lot of ignorance about this topic. But um, you know, I, I said to Craig, and I think he agrees that part of the point of Black History Month and part of the point of having a podcast and talking about these kinds of things is that we try to gain a better understanding. And in order to gain a better understanding uh, and better yourself, sometimes you have to take some risks and you need to step out um, and have these conversations that at first may be difficult or or uncomfortable, but they're conversations worth having. And uh, I mean, come on, it's just these are just movies, right. <laughs> all right? I, I don't want to make this sound like super serious, like we're doing no. serious work here, because we're going to talk about Blackula. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, I feel a little silly putting this preface in there, but I feel like we kind of need to get all that out there because we know we'll probably put our foot in our mouths a little bit in just talking about this because we have to talk about it in the context in which it appeared. It is widely recognized as one of the very first hor- uh It isn't. But it's widely recognized as one of the most influential black exploitation horror films to come out of the 70s that really set a tone uh, and opened up some doors for people that otherwise were closed. And of all of those horror films, uh, black exploitation films that did come out, it's probably still to this date regarded as one of the best. It doesn't mean it's a great movie. 
Right. Uh, but in the context of everything else, it is. I think we have a lot to talk about here. I don't know about you, Craig. Uh, I had seen Bla- uh, Blackula back in high school, I think, with some friends. And at the time, I remembered watching it, and I was expecting a certain kind of movie. When you hear exploitation, and you see movies like Shaft and mm-hmm. Superfly and stuff like that that were more in the action genres of, of this time period. Lots of sex, lots of nudity, lots of violence, and it's just kind of a mile a minute. And I was expecting something like that with this movie, I think, when I first went in. Oh, it's going to be, you know, Dracula going down to the hood and like banging girls and like you know there's going to be shootouts and cops running after him and stuff <laughs> i don't know mm-hmm. but it's definitely not it's not quite that i do remember going oh this movie's a little better than i thought it would be i just remembered being surprised so i hadn't seen it since then i was really happy to come back and revisit it at this time and i needed a lot of help you know for us to begin to talk about this so i actually went on shutter and found out that there is a little documentary there called uh, Horror Noir. Mm. It is a cool documentary. It's about an hour and a half long, and it, it talks with um, it's interviews with black historians, filmmakers, and actors, many people from these movies. They interviewed the director of this film, William Crane, who himself is black. Mm-hmm. It was fascinating. I, I, I highly recommend uh, that if you enjoy this conversation or you want to kind of go out and learn more about this stuff, and you have Shudder, here we are promoting Shutter again. Get on there mm-hmm. and find the documentary Horror Noir. It really opened my eyes up, and I think um, the podcast is probably going to be a little more substantive uh, as a result of watching that. How about you, Craig? What's your history with this movie? I had never seen it before. Uh, I don't know. Like I wasn't really familiar with it. I had heard the title, but I think that I had intentionally shied away from black exploitation films because... The exploitation part of it made me feel very uncomfortable to the point that I thought, like, these movies aren't for me. Like, not just as a matter of taste, but, like, they're not made for me. They're not... I'm not the intended audience. I I just... So, you know, in preparation for this, I did just the tiniest bit of research. I am not going to pretend to be an expert on any of this at all. But as it turns out, Though these movies are exploitive, they also, on the flip side, were kind of the first opportunity in Hollywood for black directors and black actors and, and, you know, in every aspect of filmmaking. It was kind of the first opportunity for people of color to not only take advantage of their abilities as writers, directors, actors, etc., but to be the central focus. Yeah, to be the heroes. To be the heroes. And there and there are elements of it that are stereotypical. But I, you, you can say that, I suppose, of any movie or any genre there's always stereotypes especially in horror you know horror is yeah you know rooted in stereotypes by its nature horror is exploitative you know i mean that's pretty much the whole genre <laughs> right right but here though there are those elements and 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 certainly elements that are worthy of criticism you know the focus on violence and the stereotypes of certain characters like pimps and and criminals and and violence and that kind of stuff it also provided an opportunity for real representation of people of color not just to play the villain not just to play the bad guy but to also be main characters and heroes and to have 
real storylines. And I guess I was just unaware of that. I thought that these movies, and, and I'm, I'm not well versed in them. Like I haven't seen any of the other big ones, like Shaft. You know, I've, I've seen, there are still some elements, some filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino, who's a big fan of black exploitation films. Uh, he still incorporates elements of these films into his work. So I've seen some of his work that incorporates those elements and like even silly things like, I don't remember one of those Austin Power movies with, uh, Beyonce, I think it was Goldmember or whatever. Like, her role in that movie is very reminiscent of the, like, Pam Greer kind of yeah. character. So I, I've seen some of those more contemporary ones, but I was afraid that even by indulging them, I would be in some way, I, it, it just didn't feel right. Yeah. And now that I'm more aware, that really, largely, the black community embraced these movies for the opportunities that they provided, I'm a little bit more open to it. Now, all that being said, they still, these films still faced wide criticism for their stereotypical nature, and the NAACP and some other organizations were opposed to at least elements of these movies. But... I'm kind of glad that I'm dipping my toe into the pool with this movie mm. because I really felt that while there, while there are certainly stereotypical elements going on here, <laughs> the heroes in the movie are heroes. And even Prince Mamuwalde, Blackula, he's a nuanced character and he's a sympathetic character and yeah. watching the movie didn't make me feel dirty i thought that it might and it didn't <laughs> right right that's reassuring <laughs> so that's good yeah yeah i mean before this we've done what death by temptation uh we did tales from the hood we did get out i mean those uh -huh. are almost three completely different eras right there death by temptation late 80s early 90s Tales from the Hood, mid '90s, Get Out, very modern. Those are not black exploitation movies. When we say black exploitation, we're very definitely talking about this particular yeah, time period. Yeah, it's a specific genre. Right? Yeah, and and like you said, it's a double-edged sword there with how this how these films came out. I mean, AIP is the company that made this film. The owner or producer of AIP is Samuel Z. Arkoff, and this guy basically they would ride the coattails of whatever was popular at the time. They weren't out there to lead, you know, in front uh, with their pictures. They were seeing, oh, action movies with uh, big car chases are big right now. So let's go and as cheaply as possible make a bunch of action movies with big car chases, get them out to the drive-ins, get them out to the, you know, the theaters where people are and see what sticks and try to make some money from these. Kind of like Roger Corman, mm -hmm. except Roger Corman, you know, a few steps above on that, on that level. He was actually breaking ground and doing things. But still, it's all about making money. So these films are generally low investment and low quality. And William Crane, the director of this movie, now, the script came, he didn't write it. The script came along, two guys, John Torres, Raymond Koenig. I was looking for information on them to even see if they were black, and I couldn't find that information. According to IMDb, those two together only wrote this movie and the sequel, Scream, Blackula, Scream, mm -hmm. which, by the way, Pam Greer's first appearance uh, was in Scream, Blackula, Scream. So both of these films actually are quite well regarded, uh, both this one and the sequel. But anyway, William Crane was an up-and-coming black director, and he got the opportunity. He was asked to come in and direct this movie. And what he found, <laughs> oh, he wasn't happy with the script that he found. 
It was originally going to be called Count Brown is in town. (laughs) And the main character's name was going to be Andrew Brown, which is the same name as the character from Amos and Andy. Mm -hmm. And that's problematic. Amos and Andy was a radio show that was pretty racist in its depiction of black characters. So he wanted to come in and change this, and it was his idea to make this Prince um, Mamuwalde. He completely roots it in the time. He says, Prince Mamuwalde goes to visit Count Dracula in like 1790s with his queen, I guess, wife or whatever, and uh, they go to Dracula's castle in Transylvania, and apparently in this world, Dracula himself either has influence with or is somehow involved in the slave trade from Africa. And so he goes there to try to convince Dracula to use his influence to stop that. And Dracula's like, nice idea, but no, I think there's some good things about slavery. And by the way, uh, I think your wife is pretty hot. And uh, <laughs> I want to buy her. Yeah. I want to buy her. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty horrific. And so that becomes the origin story. That was one of the changes that, you know, one of the big changes that he made. But otherwise, in this film, although you'll see an almost all black cast, there are white people in the film, of course. He said otherwise on the set, behind the scenes. I found a lot of tangible resistance mm-hmm. and maybe even tangible Racism? Yeah. Well, for racism, I mean, nobody... Because I'm sure your crew was predominantly white. Everybody was white. Right now, I can't remember anyone else black that was on that set. Some of the changes he wanted to make, both visually and to the script and to the story, he really had to fight for, and he had to really try to uh, convince even the higher-ups that, you know, just let me do this, I know what I'm doing. And uh, it seems like at the end of the day, he pretty much got what he asked for, and it's probably... But yeah, even before these genres, you know, you have black people in these tropes. There's the magical Negro trope where there's a black character in the movie that, you know, brings in some mystical wisdom. And then they give the white characters just the exact information they need to be able to succeed. Uh, And then you have the sacrificial Negro where it's sort of an extension of the faithful servant trope, like the mammy who doesn't care about herself and her plight. You know, she just wants to make the white person happy. And and that's her life is to serve them. You know, we see this a lot in horror movies too where the black character comes in and sacrifices themselves so the white character can continue to live the first to die is the trope too right in the horror movies that we get a lot of right i mean there are a lot of examples and there are a lot of examples where this isn't always true we know actually a lot of horror movies that we've done here even back in the day you know people under the stairs Wes craven was pretty good at that he has a young black kid and kincaid and nightmare on elm street 3 puts up a pretty good fight oh yeah so you know it's not across everything but uh these movies are very much fun to watch because the people in charge of these are like we're tired of this so we don't want this we want to make a movie where we're the heroes and uh, this is our subject matter and and let's go forward with it even more than it just being about like oh what we need a black hero like just outside of that context like why can't there just be a movie with mostly black people like yeah exactly right why why is that such a challenging concept or why was it but but like you said before it's like hollywood was like hmm you know who might be interested in watching movies black people maybe we should make some black people movies like how (laughs) is that just dawning on people right right (sighs) that's why it makes me somewhat uncomfortable to even talk about i'm glad that things are getting better and and i really do think that things are getting better but with the events that have transpired recently in america you know last summer with george floyd and the black lives matter movement it was 
just so eye-opening to me because in the wake of President Obama's presidency, I, I just really thought that we had moved so far mm. as a culture away from those stupid racist beliefs and, and actions and traditions and, and, and then things <sighs> – I'm puzzled because I, I don't know if things changed or if things had never changed as much as I thought that they had. Right. And, and, and it's been disappointing, frankly. Gosh, I, I, I don't want to get this. <laughs> this Blackula. podcast is, is meant, yeah, this pod, and this podcast is meant to be fun and entertaining. I, I don't want to make it too serious or, or bring people down, but personally, I've just been very disappointed in yeah. America as a civilization and a culture in terms of race relations. And it's made me very sad and it's made me do a lot of self reflection because I've always considered myself to be a progressive, uh, you know, open-minded person and and to see that so much hate and and prejudice and discrimination still exists all around me whereas I've kind of been I guess ha my head in the clouds a little bit thinking that things were better than they are it makes me feel guilty but more than that, because it's not about me. It just makes me want to be better. And so I've done a lot of self-reflection and have, have, have tried to recognize ways that I can be more proactive. And that's one of the things that we talked about. You know, f folks, I'll be really honest with you. When Todd proposed this, I said, bro, I don't know. You know, like, <laughs> I, 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 ju I just don't know that we are the people to tackle something like this. And, and Todd said, well, but you're a literature teacher. You deal with this kind of stuff all the time. And I do. I, I just, I just, I, I worry so much about my own ignorance and, and exposing it because I do, I want to be proactive and I do want to be an advocate and I do want to be an ally. And I just worry that I'm going to, like you said, put my foot in my mouth or say something that I shouldn't because I can't, I cannot, nor will I ever be able to speak to the black experience. I can't. So the only thing that I can do is you know, speak from my own experience and hope that people know that I have the best of intentions. <laughs> While we talk about this silly movie, which ultimately is, you know, just, <laughs> it just, it's, it's just Dracula, but he's black. Like that's Pretty it. Much. Like... <laughs> it really is. <laughs> well, and actually that's, what's kind of great about the movie. I think. It is what it is. I guess it's for better or for worse. If you really like Dracula and you really like the Dracula story and you want to see another version of it, this will be a fun movie for you. Well, and if you like the Hammer films, mm. I, I feel like this is, is much in line with those. It's Though it's set in an urban setting, it feels very much like those hammer pictures it's kind of traditional storytelling yeah there's really nothing unexpected here and in fact you know like i said it's i'm so glad that they inserted that opening scene in transylvania with dracula and included that part about you know wanting to stop the slave trade and then <laughs> dracula himself being a racist to totally cease the slave trade 
Why is it unrealistic? Slavery has merit, I believe. Merit? You find merit in barbarity? Barbarous from the standpoint of a slave, perhaps. Intriguing and delightful from mine. I would willingly pay for so beautiful an addition to my household as your delicious wife. Sir, are you ill? Oh, I meant no insult, Prince. It is a compliment for a man of my station to look with desire on one of your color. The prince, who is very, uh, regal's not the right word, but diplomatic. Like, he carries himself very well. Oh, yeah, he's, gentleman. Yeah, he's a very much a gentleman and has been very much a gentleman in his dealings with Dracula. And, but, and then even when he's insulted, like, he makes it clear that he takes that as insult, but he just says, we'll be going now. And it's established right away it's it's a tragic love story and i have to say okay we should talk about this since it's a horror podcast first dracula says you're not going anywhere and he calls in some henchmen and these henchmen start uh fighting with mama walde and dracula kind of holds the wife back but then like the brides of dracula come in and i love the vampire design in this. It's yeah. classic. It's classic vampire design. It's very much old school, very, you know, hammer, almost even, even, uh huh. It looks, it looks great. It's super traditional, but it looks great. They come in and, and Dracula bites Mama Walde and, and curses him and gives him this whole long speech about how you're going to be damned to have this bloodlust forever, but I'm going to lock you in this coffin so you can never satisfy your thirst. And then he tells the wife, I'm going to lock you in here and you can be comforted by his cries from inside the coffin until you die. But it's established much like in Dracula that it's also kind of this tragic romance, this tragic love story. Um, and it follows that same beat when he ends up coming back. There's a woman that he encounters right away who <laughs> is played by the same actress. Yeah. So clearly is the embodiment of his old love and and that's right from the source material mm -hmm. and that's the thrust of the movie it is it, like <laughs> yeah it, it's it's so traditional everything else i don't know it's it's almost secondary to the the very traditional elements of the story it is and it's it's compelling it's not a great movie but it's as compelling as any of the other hundreds of dracula well. Movies I've seen. <laughs> that was, you know, it's funny that you say that because I sat down. It is rated PG, by the way. There's a little bit of blood, but not much. You know, it's just vampires biting mm -hmm. each other. So I sat down and watched it with my wife. And one thing that I mentioned to her, I was like, you know, as I was kind of watching this movie, I was getting bored because it is a little bit more of a drama, you know, than anything else. And the action's not high. But I said, you know what? I guess that's Dracula. Oh, yeah. He comes out at night, kind of stalking and seductive and whatever. It takes his time. Maybe he gets invited into the house. Maybe he doesn't, but he can't unless you invite him in. And then and then the morning comes. And then for, you know, the next 15, 20 minutes, it's a bunch of people talking. 
because it's daytime and Dracula's sleeping until nighttime comes again. And then Dracula's, you know, the threat again somehow. But it's just always, they always end up being very talky, plotty type movies. Heavy drama, heavy, heavy plot, trying to figure out where is he? Oh, and there's another victim. Let's examine the victim. Now let's figure out, you know, I mean, they're kind of like that. And so this movie's really no different, I think, from a lot of those other Dracula movies in its pacing. And again, a little bit in its tone. The actor who plays Dracula, William Marshall, he is a classically trained Shakespearean actor, mostly on the stage. He started on Broadway in 1944. In 1950, he understudied with Boris Karloff as Captain Hook (laughs) in the Broadway production of Peter Pan. I didn't even know Boris Karloff was Captain Hook in the Broadway production of Peter Pan. I didn't either. Um, But um, he's most well-known for playing Othello on stage in at least six different stage productions and has probably, I think to this day, is regarded as maybe one of the best Othellos of of all time. I can see that. He has a very commanding presence. In fact, I would say that (laughs) based on my limited experience with him in this movie i would say that maybe he's more suited for the stage yeah he has that (laughs) kind of presence yeah yeah he's very stagey and like in there (laughs) so like when he comes back and he he eventually finds her name uh was luva in the past it's tina in our present day which is in the 70s eventually he kind of woos her it doesn't take very much she's clearly drawn to him but eventually they come back together and they have scenes where they kiss and eventually make love now there's not a sex scene we just see them post coitus but mm-hmm. um in those scenes where they kiss it was cringy to me yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> it really was there was no chemistry or passion at all no. like it was like let's just kind of close-lipped mash our faces together (laughs) it's almost like the camera knew that too because it would just kind of stay behind one of their heads so you couldn't even really see the kids going on you know (laughs) but that said he's he does have a a very theatrical presence that almost makes him a it kind of makes him stand out in this movie well, but I guess that makes sense. I mean, he's supposed to be from the 1800s, 1700s or whatever. Yeah. So he would have a different affect than well, modern people. And isn't that the kind of classical Bela Lugosi vampire anyway? You know, he's a he's a gentleman above all things. Right. He's also six foot five. So, <laughs> I mean, he literally towers above everybody in this movie. And you don't always notice it, you know, based on the camera angles. But in some of these fight scenes, when he comes across, them it's like it's like the tall man you know he just comes up to him with his hand and around their neck and lifts them up off the ground and just chucks people around and by the way the fight scenes are pretty bad i mean ultimately i kind of when i if i'm going to talk about like the cinematography as a whole and the staging of the the scenes and all that i i do think it's pretty wanting in the technical department right there i didn't find the fight scenes terribly convincing or or really thrilling no there's a chase scene in there that's like ugh, no it's not even exciting and so yeah there's there's it has these kinds of problems where i don't feel like the movie really elevate really almost never has like a moment where you're kind of like oh okay cool like there's something exciting happening well and it's a mystery 
Kind of. You know, Blackula, Mama Walde, there are several things that I want to talk about. You know, mm. the, like I said, the plot is so, I don't want to say non-essential because, you know, it's a movie. You want a plot, but if you know the story of Dracula, it's, it's That's it. pretty straightforward, just set in an urban place. But there are things that I found interesting. And one of those things that I found interesting is the way that Blackula gets moved <laughs> to Los Angeles. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> it, it, okay, so apparently, you know, after the scenes in the beginning in the 1800s, or 1700s, whatever it is, then we jump to modern day, still in Transylvania, where apparently a real estate agent is trying to sell off Dracula's estate because Dracula and his gang have been killed years and years ago by Van Helsing. And they're trying to sell off his estate, and I guess they're having difficulty selling it off? I don't know. So these two (laughs) gay guys from Los Angeles are buying this property, and like they make it the the realtor like reveals that this was Dracula's place and all these bad things happened there and they exploit that to say oh well in that case I think we need to renegotiate a lower price and the guy's like okay whatever just take it and so they negotiate the lower price and as they're signing the contract one of the guys <laughs> you idiot it's an int- <laughs> it, yeah yeah you dumbass like <laughs> we're gonna make a fortune off of all of this like, the literally Dracula tells legend this. is. <laughs> yeah, the Dracula legend is huge in America, and the guy's like, uh, no, it's not a legend, it was real, and they're like, okay. What I found interesting about it was, whereas this is a black exploitation movie, I was shocked to see a representation of, one, a gay couple, and they are established as a couple, yeah, and two... An interracial gay couple in mm. 1972. Mm, like, yeah. you couldn't have gotten away with that in a mainstream movie. And I think that that goes to show that where there is prejudice and intolerance for one thing, that extends to other things. Yeah. And when you tackle that head on, you open the door, not just to the group that you're focusing on, but to other marginalized groups as well. That's true. Um, which is great. And, of course, these guys are very effeminate and stereotypical, but it didn't bother me. And I have to, you know, I, I don't want to draw parallels too much because, again, it's not the same, and I cannot speak from a place of oppression that black people can speak from. But I wonder if my feelings about that kind of representation of homosexual people as a homosexual man, I was happy to see it. It didn't bother me so much that it was stereotypical. Mm. I was just glad to be invited to the party. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. I don't know. So anyway, I, I just found it interesting. And, and and it wasn't like it wasn't a big deal. Like yeah. nobody really made nobody made any big deal about it. Yeah, like th- later after they come back and they open the thing and they both get bit and eventually come back as everybody thinks they're dead, but they eventually come back as vampires. Yes. There's some comments made. Anything on that missing body report? 
Nothing. No fingerprints. No signs of breaking and entering. Not a thing. Who the hell would want a dead faggot? They call them fags and faggots. Um, a lot, yeah. Several times. Yeah, and, and I don't like that. I don't like that word, but I also understand it was a different time and people used those words just as in the movie. I don't think any white people use it, but black people use the N word in this movie too. It was a different time. I don't like it, but I understand that it was a different time and it just didn't in that context. It didn't really bother me. Uh, In fact, I was actually surprised by how casually it was presented. Like they just are Mm. this gay couple. Yeah. And that's it just is. <laughs> yeah, you know, it wasn't laid out for you in a big dramatic way. It was just that's yeah. Right. No special attention was really called to it. Except for the fact, of course, that like you said, it's a bit of a stereotypical portrayal. It is. But you know, I mean there are people like that too, right? So it's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Bobby, I think Bobby and Billy are the two. Uh, Bobby, I thought, was like a black Richard Simmons. That's what he looked like to me. (laughs) 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 So funny. The the afro, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Something about his smile, too. I don't know. Anyway, um, Bobby uh, is laying in repose, and they get visited by Dr. Gordon Thomas and uh, two women who turn out to be uh, his wife and then his wife's sister. His wife is Michelle. And his sister is Tina. I guess they know Bobby somehow. Just from the neighborhood, I think. He, uh, being a police, they call him doctor. I guess he's like a police detective. He's like um, like the CSI guy or whatever. Yeah, like, um, yeah. He's a little curious about how he died. And uh, the coroner mentions, says, well, at the family's request, we haven't embalmed him yet. But, you know, I did try to cover up these odd neck wounds. And so he says neck wounds, and he looks over and he sees the neck wounds. Again, this is this sort of typical vampire thing. And so that sets him off sort of on his quest after the second person shows up dead, who is a cab driver. I loved that part. Oh, gosh. (laughs) That was great. (laughs) That was so Mama Walde sees them visit, and he sees Tina, who looks just like his wife. So he follows her, and she gets scared, and she runs away, and he chases her. She drops her purse. Then, like, she gets away. But he's running across the street and he gets hit by a cab. And mm-hmm. the the cab driver is a, a woman, a black woman. She gets out and she's like, you dummy, what were you doing? Like, it, it was just such funny dialogue. But then he kind of vamps out on her a little bit or at least starts like looking thirsty or whatever. <laughs> Look at man, you find, I mean, she's got to be around here somewhere. I mean, uh, you know. I bet you she's worried right now and looking for you. So why don't you just bag off of me and go get her? I, I bet she's worried to death about you. So I, I bet she's called every hospital around. Now listen, you, you take your hands off of me. I don't know you. <laughs> the interaction was so humorous to me. And he does end up biting her. And then she's dead or and, undead and or whatever. she is the most sexily dressed cab driver i've ever seen <laughs> she was yes yeah, yeah she was hot and sassy i liked her she was hot and sassy yeah <laughs> she ended up dying which is interesting too because uh, you know there are little moments in this movie that continue to kind of remind you and kind of push your buttons of the racism like you said i don't think it's ever gone as far as anybody using the any white person using the n-word But interestingly enough, the coroner, when they examine the body, one of the first comments he makes when he looks down at her, Detective Gordon, by the way, is black. Um, The coroner is not. Ask me, she's looking for something. You know what I mean? Looking for something. 
Yeah, Sam, get me a cup of coffee, will you? All right, I can take a hint. Uh-huh. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's this kind of plays with this notion that, well, A, you know, a woman who dresses up in a quote-unquote super sexy way is looking for guys to get on her. But also, like, black women in the U.S. have historically also been hypersexualized, and I felt like there was a little bit of that, you know, kind of nudging right there. There are little comments like that that kind of remind you, oh, yeah, there's, there's like, racism going on here. Even though the white characters and the black characters in this movie, like in the police station, are, are clearly working together, there doesn't seem to be any of that kind of tension these little comments undermine that well right i just think that that's such an excellent commentary on society and i doubt that they were going for social commentary it's just a representation of how things were and probably how things are Mm. like dr you were using his last name. We're going to confuse people because I, I always called him Dr. Thomas because everybody, his first name is Thomas. Um, but he works closely with this white detective and they seem to have a very solid rapport, you know, like Mm -hmm. mutual respect for one another. But when Thomas, you know, he's talking about all these different deaths and he's like, I know they're connected somehow. I know there's some connection. And his white friend is like... There's been a lot of panther activity lately. Panthers? Come on, Jack, don't cop out. Two f***ing interior decorators and a lady cab driver. Panthers? Oh, come on. Uh, no. <laughs> why, <laughs> why would you just automatically think... But like, I just feel like it's that yeah. dynamic. Like, the white guy just automatically jumps to, oh, well... It's gang related or it's Black Panther related or what, like they just jump to these racist conclusions. But mm-hmm. I also liked that there was a strong black voice there to say, no, you idiot. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> what is wrong with you? Exactly. <laughs> it's funny. I didn't realize uh, until later that, um, I had to kind of put all this together because I was still trying to work out the relationship of the girls. It's just not spelled out for you right at the beginning. Yeah. But actually, his wife also works with him. So here, she is yeah, like a researcher, a doctor, scientist. scientist. Again, to see a black person in a role like this just wasn't that common right. at this time as well. So right. she, by the way, she's gorgeous. That woman, I want to be my girlfriend. And uh, I just couldn't yeah. stop thinking about that the whole movie. Her eyes are piercing. And her name is Denise Nicholas. And she's still with us. Uh, and she was working all the way up till 2004. And she has a, gosh, a huge filmography of television and movies that pretty much, I mean, he she did uh, a couple TV series before this movie. But then after this movie, she was doing a lot more. I think this movie had a lot to do with boosting her career a bit. I mean, she's like in the Love Boat and Benson and um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all the. I mean, she looked familiar to me, so I I gotta know. Oh, and then um, in 1990, there was a Bill Cosby movie called Ghost Dad, and she was Joan in Ghost mm-hmm. Dad. So, yeah, she probably would look familiar to you too. And then I've got to say that the chief, uh, his name is Gordon Pinsent, and he is probably the most accomplished of everybody here. He's also still with us and still working. He's got 150 credits to his name and. Uh, he's very recognizable, at least I thought he was, and he's been all over television and movies, just like anything you can imagine this guy's been in. So it's interesting that this movie, as low budget, as cheap as it was, still ended up with these stars that either were already making names for themselves at the time or would therefore then go on to make some names for themselves. 
Yeah, I, I saw that too. I looked, you know, I didn't know any of these actors. Uh, I thought some of them looked somewhat familiar, but I, you know, I looked at their pages, their Wikipedia pages, and and most of them, the lead people that I looked at had, you know, dozens, if not, you know, a hundred or more credits. These are yeah. solid working actors. Um, w- one of the things that I thought was fun. Okay, so basically, what happens at this point is Mama Walde is is in pursuit of Tina and Dr. Thomas is investigating the murders and I, I think that this is really kind of stupid yeah and it all converges <laughs> like everybody all of our main characters just happen to be super close knit like yeah, exactly like, <laughs> exactly like they're they're in a group of like five or six people who are around each other all the time yeah mama walde goes to the club that they hang out at and meets up with him tina's immediately enamored with him for i guess because of like what do they call that what do vampires have thrall or whatever (laughs) (laughs) it's the only thing you could you could say i mean why else would she be so enamored with this guy right (laughs) right right this weird much older than her man who walks around wearing a cape Um, but they're all very, very closely tied to one another. When I said they all meet at this club, I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk Mm. about the musical numbers. Yes. Um, there, there are musical performances in this club, these like R&B numbers. And, and the score is very like funk and R&B too, which is typical, as I understand it, of these movies. Yeah. Um, and it's good. You know, I like it. I thought that the first time we were in the club and they basically gave us a full live music video, I thought it was a little excessive. It wasn't that I didn't like the music. I thought the music was great. I just thought it was like, okay, I get it. (laughs) I don't need to see the whole song. Um, But they're all very closely knit and there's a photographer in the club, uh, like one of the old fashioned kind of like cigarette girls who's like in like a Mm -hmm. skimpy kind of costume and she's going around taking pictures and she takes pictures she takes a picture of tina and mama walde's like trying to get away from her like he doesn't want his picture taken and she goes back home to develop the pictures and i i love me a dark room scene by the way i just love that red lighting i love it but she realizes that uh he doesn't appear in the images in the pictures and she hears something that's going on and this i think there are two, but this, I think, was my favorite shot of the movie, where her her dark room isn't really a room. It's just a curtained-off place in her apartment, and she hears something, and she throws open the curtains, and Mama Walde is standing there in full vamp mode, and when he vamps out, he, like, grows, like, pork chop sideburns and a beard. It's kind of weird. Thick eyebrows, yeah. But he's he's standing there with his arms outstretched, and I don't know how they did it. I don't know if they did it with a dolly or if he just stood on a skateboard and they pulled it or what, but he just very quickly glides towards her, very menacing, and she's screaming, and it's, you know, in this red light, and 
I actually found that moment, which is maybe all of three seconds, legitimately scary. Yeah. Like, if I had seen that when I was a kid, I think I might have had nightmares. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree with you. There are a few jump scares in this movie. They're not all effective, but th- that was probably one of the most effective ones, I thought. Yeah. There's another one where, like, they've got the cab driver on ice in the morgue. Eventually... Dr. Thomas figures out that they're vampires. He digs up one of the gay guys. One of the gay guys' bodies went missing, but the other gay guy was was married. Or not married. Buried. <laughs> buried. Um, <laughs> not yet, Craig. Not yet. <laughs> he was buried. And, and they dug him up, and as soon as they dug him up, he jumped out and he was a vampire, and they staked him right away. And so uh, Dr. Thomas knows it's vampires now, and so he calls the morgue and tells the dumb morgue attendant to pull the cab driver off ice which he does but he doesn't lock the door as he was adamantly instructed to do and so like while he's on the phone with somebody else that lady bursts out of the room that she is screaming and you know again with like her arms out and all vamped out i thought that was scary too that was the second my second favorite part. That scene was awesome. And actually the director, William Crane, talked about that in the documentary. He said, you know, when he was filming this, sometimes he wasn't getting a lot of help from people. And when he walked into that police station, he saw this really long hallway. He was like, I need a fast speed camera, which is basically a slow motion camera. It pulls the, pulls the film through really quickly at a high frame rate, which then you play back at a slower frame rate and it gives you slow motion. He kept asking for and asking for and asking for it and they weren't going to give it to him. And then on the day that they went to film that, suddenly another van pulled up and offloaded a high-speed camera for him. And it's because up top they started seeing the dailies and liking what they saw, so they decided to give him that. And uh, it's a great effect, right, in slow motion. It was really cool. Yeah. There's kind of a cool showdown in, like, okay, so they the police spot Bobby, who was the gay guy whose body went missing. And they follow him and they track him down to the, like this abandoned warehouse. It's it's not abandoned, I guess. It's just a warehouse. It's where the gay guys had had all of Dracula's stuff taken. They went in there and I expected they were going to just find him. But they had talked about how vampirism spreads like wildfire. When they get in there, they do find Bobby. But there's also like probably a dozen or more other vampires. Again, looking fantastic. Mm. It's old school makeup and like big fangs and the makeup is just a lot of shading and green and blue and stuff. Yeah. And and like really highlighting the cheekbones and making them, you know, look gaunt. and Exactly. Um, But it looks fantastic and I love it. And there's this big showdown and a big fight and they end up throwing unlit oil lamps on the floor that just then explode and uh, <laughs> what was that about and burn <laughs> i don't know but it was weird i mean it was cool it was cool to see all these vampires running around engulfed in, in flames. flames yeah eventually the guy figures out that it's mama walde who he knows because he's, he's mean, dating his sister-in-law not only does he know but his sister knew a long time his sister-in-law knew a long time ago i mean because he goes over to her apartment and through his charms or whatever tells him everything 
He just lays it all out in one long monologue. And like this crazy Tells thing. Her, right? yeah. yeah, I'm actually from the 1700s and I was his prince and I went to see Dracula. I mean, he lays out everything. And, and you're my wife. Don't you feel it too, you know, and all that. And then she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they like have sex. And so she's smitten with him, but they have all started camping out together at the chief's house. So that has been kind of keeping the sister separated from him, and I'm not sure he knows exactly where she is, or at least he doesn't get to her. Once they figure it all out, like uh, Mama Walde and Tina are together in her apartment, but Dr. Thomas bursts in with the police and Mama Walde flees, and like they try to talk to Tina, they're like, listen, I don't care how you feel about him. He's a bad guy. He's killed a bunch of people. And like, she feels kind of conflicted for a second, Mm -hmm. but then she's in her room and we've also seen that Blackula can turn into a bat and fly around. He's like up on top of a building. And I guess he reaches out to her telepathically and tells her to meet him. And she does. She goes out the window and they meet up and they're going to run. It just seems like they're going to run away together. Dr. Thomas and the police somehow track them down to this old building. I don't know. Like, the whole building's not underground, but the part of it that they're in is, and it looks... It's like a chemical facility. I imagine they they wanted a big gothic-type end sequence for this, but, of course, to make it urban, what's the most gothic kind of, like, passageways and crazy stuff you could find? It's it's this big underground chemical processing facility that more or less looks like... uh, you know, where Freddy has his showdown in, in all of this, right, <laughs> all of right, his exactly. movies, pipes exactly. and ramps and staircases and stuff everywhere. Yeah. And really, Mama Walde and Tina, they're just trying to get away. But mm-hmm. they're running away and a cop starts shooting at them and shoots Tina in the back. Like, yeah, dude, like <laughs> that was messed up. It was messed up. Prescient. And I felt it, it was sad. And like. Mama Walde kneels down over and he's like, Tina, my lover, I cannot lose you again. Forgive me. Now this is the only way. You will be with me always. And he bites her, but while he's biting her, it looked to me like she died. Like he had tried to turn her, but it was too late. Yeah. And that's what it seems like happened because then he stands up and he yells, Dr. Thomas, uh, I curse you and everybody else that's helping you and everybody who is in this building will die. And then he goes around and starts picking them off one by one. And I don't remember everything he does. He electrocutes one. He throws one off like a big ledge and... He plays Donkey Kong on another one, tossing barrels from the top uh, down yeah, on him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally true. Yeah. And and meanwhile, Dr. Thomas and his police chief friend are looking around, and they find a coffin, and they assume he's in it. So Dr. Thomas opens it while the police chief like has a stake held up above his head. And as soon as they open it, he stabs the stake down, and it's not Mama Walde, it's Vampire Tina. So apparently the the change did work, but now she's staked and she's dead. At which point, Mama Walde shows back up and he's like, well, I don't have any reason to live now. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of lame, right? I mean, it was a little pathetic. I, I, 
I mean, I get it. I get the whole notion, but he just gives up. And uh, I guess he would. He's didn't want to be a vampire. This isn't Dracula, right? Right, this no. Is, this is right. Blackula. And uh, he kind of gave up his chance, and he climbs up the staircase. And actually, I thought it was a pretty good, well-edited sequence of shots with the sun and him. And they did these interesting things with the sunlight. It was one of the more arty points of the movie. But at the end, he just collapses at the top of this staircase on the ground outside in the middle of this industrial facility. It was so sadly anticlimactic. And maybe that's the point, that it would just kind of be that pathetic. But um, he, yeah, he dissolves away. His face kind of dissolves away and then to a bone, and then we get the end credits. Mm-hmm. And that's it. I, You know, like I said before... Uh, the movie was boring at times, but I think, A, it's because I've seen Dracula story. I know what's going to happen, more or less. And then, B, Dracula is kind of a low-key story anyway. So, uh, it, you know, wouldn't naturally be action-packed and filled with a, with, with a lot of scares all the time. And then, you know, this other part of it was how quickly he just seduces Tina and she just goes along with it. You know, she's just yeah, like, it's a little silly. I mean, that happens so early in the movie that this point then when it gets to having this mental power over her and he's a bat and then she's kind of wandering around and they're trying to find her before Dracula can get to her. I was kind of like, eh, let, let him get her. You know, it seems like they'd be happy together. They're, right. She knows what she's getting into. They're both kind of fine with it. Right. She's a grown woman. Yeah. She can do what she wants. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that tension really wasn't there for me. And so um, it just became a tragic love story, I guess you could call it. Well, and, and all of all of that, you know, the seduction of this reincarnation of the timeless love or whatever. I mean, that's true to the sort to Bram Stoker's source material arguably it's more nuanced in the novel <laughs> yeah um, but there's no nuance here but i mean it's it's not necessarily any more believable so yeah i mean it, it had its silly elements overall i just thought it was as far as movies go it, it was fine i didn't love it I, you know it, it felt very much a product of its time it felt like an older movie that mm. like you said the cinematography is pretty pedestrian there's nothing special to talk about it there's not much by way of effects i i liked the makeup but it wasn't like it was extraordinary um there were some interesting things uh that they did with lighting mm. I think what's most notable is, you know, the fact that uh, this is a, a, a black film starring primarily black actors with a black director. And in that respect, very different than other things that were happening in 1972. And for... Th- I was going to say surprisingly, but that's not what I meant. People were surprised at the time that it did very well. It was one of the highest grossing films of 1972. Yeah, um, it was. It, it was and very successful and critically well received for the most part. Well, it was. I think it was mixed bag on the critical. But yeah, a lot of people, a number of critics at the time, you know, were really impressed by it. But I mean, it, I think it's worth pointing out, it can't be that high grossing without white people going to see it too. You know, I mean, it wasn't right, just... Right. And and it was the true of a lot of these movies. Big reason why they were so successful is, hey, it turned out, you know what? Maybe white people also would like to see these this kind of story and these kind of right. characters. And so uh, it really was groundbreaking in that way. And um, Mama Walde ended up being the first black vampire to appear in film. So it is... That's right. It's pretty historical. And then he went on, I mean, 
I don't know if you recognized him, but uh, did you ever watch Pee-wee's Playhouse growing up on Saturday morning? Yes. Let the cartoon begin. The king of cartoons, buddy. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> I knew I recognized him. I missed that. Well, because his list of you know things he's been in was so long, I skimmed through it. I totally missed that. Hilarious. <laughs> you know, uh, the, ultimately, how fortunate we are that uh, these types of movies, regardless of their exploitative nature, paved the way for not just black people, but people of of color, non-white people, to have a place in Hollywood and, and, and cinema in general. And we have a long way to go as far as race relations go in the United States. I'm so sad to say it. It's embarrassing, mm. frankly, but we mm. have a long way to go. But I, I do think... That progress is is hopefully being made and will continue to be made. And there are a lot of prominent names in cinema and in the entertainment industry. Uh, a lot of black voices, voices of people of color. We are seeing, you know, some emergence of horror films because that's really you know, what I watch. I, I, I'm not going to speak for other genres, but that that are made by people of color, focus on people of color. Jordan Peele, you know, with Get Out and Us, and, and he's got all kinds of other projects in, in the works. You know, I feel like he's trailblazing in that way, but he's not alone. It's necessary. Uh, there needs to be that kind of representation. And it's not just about representation. It's about the fact that people of different cultures and races and backgrounds have voices and have something to say. And it's not just, they're not just black movies, they're movies. And the whitest of white guys like you and I, they're there for our consumption too, and they should be, and they need to be, and, and, you know, it just makes things feel more inclusive, and the more of that that we can get, the better. So, I, I hope to continue to see that kind of, um, representation. And that's that's for any minority group, any disenfranchised group, not necessarily just people of color, but specifically people of color. I want to see more of it. I know that most people do, um, and I'm glad that it's happening. We need more stories in the world, period, as, as many right. and as widely varied as possible. From these stories, we gain perspective. I, I don't know how true this is, but there are studies, obviously. There was a pretty famous study that was done fairly recently. I read about a few years ago. And I would like to think this is true anyway, because I am a reader. It said that people who read uh, tend to be more empathetic. Yeah. Postulating why that might be is if you actually literally spend time in someone else's head and someone else's story and someone else's narrative for a while you can begin to see things from their perspective perhaps and then that opens you up to the ability to do that on a regular basis and so yeah the more stories we have from the widest variety of places we have i think just in general as a population as a race as a human race right the more empathetic we can be and maybe solve a lot of these problems so I agree 100%. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. You can find us online, twoguys.red40net.com. Just Google us, Two Guys in a Chainsaw. You can also find our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. Send us requests and uh, just drop us a line. Let us know what you want to hear and what you thought of our episode. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys in a Chainsaw.